0: I thought about just sitting there for a second and seeing if Brent, whoever he is, would get up here and talk this evening, but uh, it's all right, Robert. I, I know who I am, and God knew who you meant, so it's all right. We're continuing to look at our study of the Twelve Apostles this evening, and we're looking at Matthew tonight. Matthew is also known by his Jewish name, Levi. We read a moment ago from Matthew chapter 9, which is the account of his call in his own gospel. Uh, In Mark's parallel account, chapter 2, verse 14, he refers to him as Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Same thing's true in Luke's account of this incident. He refers to him as Levi. But in all four of the list of the twelve apostles, and here in Matthew's own account of his call he refers to himself as Matthew. Now, because Matthew is one of the authors of the Gospels, we might expect that we would know an awful lot about him. But we actually don't. In fact, in his own Gospel, he only mentions himself by name twice. Once is in this account of his call, and once is in the list of the twelve. In fact, if you go on reading in Matthew chapter 9, he recounts this incident of Jesus reclining at table there in someone's house at a big banquet. Matthew doesn't even record that he's the one that threw that party. It's for Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 5, to record that. We'll read that in a few moments. But our impression then, putting that all together, is Matthew was evidently a a humble man. He was content to remain in the background of his story and not call undue attention to himself the most noteworthy fact about Matthew is his occupation as our text says Jesus saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth Matthew was a tax collector and that's about the last credential that we might expect for someone who the Lord called to be one of his apostles. You could become extremely wealthy being a tax collector. It was a lucrative profession with just one small downside. People hated your guts. There was probably no more despised group of people in first century Judea than tax collectors. Now that shouldn't come as a surprise to us on one level because tax collectors seem to be generally resented. I don't know about you but I expect that most of us really don't relish any dealings that we have with the Internal Revenue Service and that's something that if you go and you read historically people in all societies in all ages are complaining about the taxes that they have to pay. It seems that there's just this universal human resentment to them. We don't like having to pay taxes. We think in our own history, uh, we fought a revolution, <laughs> primarily because we didn't like the taxes that the British were imposing upon us. So while there's that general resentment of tax collectors on one level, there were some specifics in Matthew's day that made tax collectors particularly resented. Judea was an imperial province, and that meant that it was under the direct rule of the emperor, in contrast to some provinces that were controlled by the Roman Senate. So the emperor appointed a governor called a procurator who was responsible, among other other things, gathering up all of the taxes in his province. We're talking specifically here with the direct taxes about the poll tax, also known as the head tax, and the ground tax. These were essentially income taxes and property taxes. We can relate to those. Those are uh, pretty common throughout history. These things went straight into the imperial treasury and they were collected by imperial officials. This was part of their regular duties. This was all uh, very heavily regulated. Now, Judea had been under foreign control for centuries by this point, with the exception of a brief period of about a century when they were under the Maccabees. Uh, You go back 500 years, first the Persians, then Alexander's empire, uh, then Alexander's successors, the the Ptolemies in Egypt, the Seleucids in Syria, and now the Romans. Uh, They were used to paying taxes to foreign overlords. That wasn't anything new. They didn't like it, but they were used to it. But in Matthew's day in particular, in Jesus' day in the first century, there was this bubbling sort of resentment under the surface because when the emperor took direct control, 6 AD, they deposed Archelaus, Herod the Great's son. The emperor took control of the province. Taxes went directly to him. A census was levied so that they could know how to apportion this there was a Revolt led by a fellow named Judas the Galilean because he resented the fact that they were paying taxes directly to the Emperor They should be answerable only to God a number of the Pharisees and the more radical offshoot of the Pharisees the zealots in particular resented that they shouldn't have to pay tribute to Caesar and it's this sort of uh, Unrest that's fermenting that ultimately led to the Jewish revolt in the 60s But you think about a situation Like we have in Mark 12 and in the other parallels in the Gospels when they come to him and asking Jesus Is it lawful to pay tribute to Caesar or not? That's the background there and a lot of the problem was Jesus asked for a denarius that coin the inscription on it said Tiberius Caesar son of the divine Augustus In other words, the objection here wasn't just political, it was religious. This was viewed as idolatry. You're paying something to Caesar, you're paying him tribute as a god. And you can see why some scrupulous, zealous Jews objected to that. So there's the problem with taxes on one level. But beyond those direct official taxes, what they really hated were the tax farmers. The publicans. These were the people who collected the indirect taxes that were levied by the Romans. And we're talking here about custom duties on imports and on exports. Uh, they built toll booths at roads and bridges. They taxed basically any sort of trade good that traveled along the road. Uh, they levied taxes on animals, beasts of burden. They even taxed axles on wagons. On and on you could go with this, we don't have any comprehensive list because it was literally limited only by the imagination of the tax collector. Anything that they thought they could get away with, they'd try to tax. This was something that operated outside of the bounds of official Roman law. They constantly harassed people on their journeys. This is a sort of process that's inquisitorial by nature. You're traveling along, and the tax man wants to see your goods so that he can tax them if need be. And then you have to unpack all of your animals. You have to unload your wagons. You have to open up all of your boxes so he can inspect it. Uh, He might even go through your personal correspondence. This is an incredibly invasive thing, and you can see why these people were hated. Why there was strong resentment on account of this. All of it was Uh, entirely arbitrary. It was tyrannical, and without any official controls over this, whatever the publican could extract, he did. This system was ripe for extortion because the Romans expected you to give them X amount. But, you know, once this goes on down the line, if you can get away with getting over X amount, you're going to do it, and you're going to keep it for yourself. So you can see why this system was hated in general. But it goes even further than that when you get down to the lowest level for a fellow like Matthew. The publican proper, the publicanus, was the head tax collector over an entire province. Under him, he would contract out to chief tax collectors, sort of you know upper or middle management type guys. And these chief tax collectors would then contract out to even lesser people under them who actually went and did the dirty work. You look through the New Testament and Zacchaeus is one of those chief tax collectors. He's there in his headquarters in Jericho. He has men working under him. Matthew is one of these grunts on the ground it seems because he's sitting there at the toll booth uh, charging people as they go in and out inspecting their goods. Men like Matthew were particularly hated because he puts a face on this legalized extortion. You might hate the system in general, but this is the guy you see every day. And he's sitting there in the same place in an area where he grew up. He's extorting his friends and his neighbors, people who've known him his whole life, in order to make a living. You can see why they hated him for that. And he collaborated with the oppressors to do it. So a tax collector, all at the same time, rolled into one. He is a traitor to his nation and to his people. He is a thief. He defrauds people. And he's an apostate. He's betrayed his God in working for the emperor. That was the common perception of men like Matthew. And that's only reinforced by the way Jesus speaks about tax collectors. Several different places, but here are some examples, all of them incidentally from Matthew's Gospel. In the Sermon on the Mount, he uses tax collectors to ironically illustrate the low degree of love that people tried to have for one another. You know, he says, you've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you that you shall love your enemies? He says in chapter 5 verse 46 if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? Lowest common denominator those tax collectors even love their friends. In Matthew chapter 18 when he's talking about how to deal with problems in the church He says that if your brother sins against you first you go to him And if that doesn't work you take two or three witnesses and if that doesn't work You take it before the whole church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, verse 17, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Cast him out. Withdraw from him. He's persona non grata. Not welcome anymore. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 19, he accepts the rebuke against him. It's intended as a rebuke. He takes it as a sort of compliment that he's the friend of tax collectors and sinners. So this is the way that men like Matthew were thought of. This is the man that Jesus calls to be one of his apostles. And he dropped everything all at once to follow him. Why? I don't think we're going too far out on a limb to assume that Matthew was a materialist. You don't get into that sort of line of work without being one in his day. So why would he give up this extremely lucrative profession to go and to follow Jesus? I think the best answer we can give is that whatever choices Matthew had made in the past, deep down, he was a Jew who loved Scripture who loved the Old Testament and who was empty. There was a void in his life. He was spiritually hungry. He wasn't happy. He was dissatisfied with his life and with the choices that he would made. We know that he loved the Old Testament because if you read through his gospel you'll see that he quotes from it 99 times. That's more than all three of the other Gospel accounts combined. Matthew knew the Old Testament and realized that he didn't learn this in the synagogue because he was no longer welcome in the synagogue. He must have acquired a great deal of this facility with it through his own personal study. There was this emptiness, this hole in him, and he turned to Scripture to try to fill that hole. And then one day, Jesus presented something that seemed to fulfill what he read about in Scripture. Now, I don't think we should assume that this is his first encounter with Jesus. Uh, we've seen this with several of the apostles, that they follow him, they come to know him, they follow him on an intermittent basis, haphazardly when they can. And then he goes and finally calls them to leave everything and follow him full-time. And then, as Luke puts it even later, out of those who are following him full-time, his disciples, he called some, 12 of them, to be his apostles. So Matthew, perhaps, was already following him on an intermittent basis. Even if that's not true, at the very least, I think we can imagine that he had heard about Jesus. Sitting at that toll booth every day, he would get a lot of news. He'd heard about this man and the miracles that he'd performed, the things that he taught, the claims that he made about himself. And as I said, I think it's even more likely that he'd probably heard Jesus for himself. And so when Jesus came and said, follow me, that was it. He dropped everything he left that life behind and he began to follow Jesus and The very first thing that he does is he throws a party and invites everyone he knows That tells us right there that Matthew was a a Well-to-do man because he had the resources to throw a banquet like this, but the types of people who he invites Well, I mean Matthew wasn't accepted in polite society so he couldn't invite socially acceptable people. He could only invite a bunch of ne'er do wells like himself. Now, naturally, that scandalizes the Pharisees. You know, what, what sort of rabbi would go and associate with riffraff like that? Jesus answers that question and he explains why he called a man like Matthew in the first place. This is from Luke's account, Luke chapter 5, verse 29. but sinners to repentance. There are a number of lessons that emerge from Matthew's life that I think are worth noting for us. The first one is that Matthew reminds us that no one is beyond the grace of God. Matthew was a tax collector. A publican, that's the way he's always identified, and we've already talked at length tonight about what that meant. He was an outcast. He was a pariah. He was socially ostracized. All of the Jewish leaders absolutely despised him. And yet, Jesus saw something in him that made him worthy of being one of his apostles. I think it's interesting to note, note this well, There are three tax collectors who are mentioned in some detail in the Gospel accounts. And all three of them, these lowest of the low, these dregs of society, all three of them found forgiveness. There's Matthew, of course. There's Zacchaeus, Luke chapter 19. Zacchaeus, that chief tax collector in Jericho. Jesus comes to town, he invites himself over to his house. And Zacchaeus, you remember, says that he's going to give half his goods away to the poor, and if he's defrauded anyone, he'll restore them fourfold. And Jesus says, Today has salvation come to this house, for he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Sounds very much like what he said in Luke chapter 5. He didn't come to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. The third one is in Luke chapter 18, that parable of the publican and the Pharisee who go up to pray. And you remember that the Pharisee the Pharisee lifts up his hands and he prays and essentially he says, Lord, you are so lucky to have someone as awesome as I serve you. I do so many great things for you. And I'm thankful that I'm not like other men, especially not like this tax collector over here. In contrast, the tax collector would not so much as lift his eyes up, but he smote his breast and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said that he, not the Pharisee, went to his house justified. All of this serves as a powerful reminder to us. Do not write anyone off. Never think that anyone is beyond the reach of God's grace. Never think that anyone is incapable of being saved. Jesus came specifically, He said, to call people who were lost, just like Matthew just like these other tax collectors that we mention, So let's not ever find ourselves in the position of people coming into our midst and us thinking that, well, I I don't know about that guy. He has a reputation. I don't know about her. Is she really the type that we want around here? Don't you know about their history? Don't you know about their problems with substance abuse, or they got a rap sheet a mile long, or or whatever it may be, they have a bad reputation. If we find ourselves not welcoming people because of that, we're putting ourselves in the position of the Pharisees. Let's instead take the position of Jesus. Let's be friends of tax collectors and sinners. Those who are whole don't need a physician. It's those who are sick that need it. Secondly, Matthew demonstrates to us that following Jesus is costly. You know, of all the apostles, Matthew gave up the most when he decided to follow Jesus. If you're a fisherman, Jesus calls you. You lead behind your nets. You go follow him for a while. It doesn't work out. You can go back to your fishing business. You can pick up right where you left off. There's plenty of fish in the sea. But for Matthew... The moment he left his tax-collecting gig, that was scooped up by someone else who was greedy and unscrupulous. There was no going back to that. And Matthew gave up all of his wealth, all of those great material possessions that he had in order to follow Jesus. He paid a heavy price for it. But he didn't hesitate for a moment when Jesus said, Follow me. What about us? Have we counted the cost? Are we willing to give up everything to follow Jesus? Are we willing to give up anything to follow Jesus? Remember, this isn't a decision that we make only once and then don't have to make again. Uh, Luke records him saying, Luke chapter 9, verse 23, he asks us to count the cost daily. We must take up our cross daily and follow him. What if we had to give up for Jesus? And if you're drawing a blank when I ask that question, if you can't think of anything professionally or personally, anything on the job, anything materially, Anything in terms of relationships with friends or family, anything in terms of ambitions that you had, anything in terms of, of habits that you once had that you've gave, given up. If I say, What have you given up for Jesus, and you can't think of anything, then maybe you're not following him as you ought. Following Jesus should be costly. That's reinforced to us again and again and again. Third, Finally, Matthew shows us, just like we've seen with so many of these apostles, God can use anyone. You know, when Matthew left his job behind, I suppose all he had as a tax collector were his skills for record-keeping and maybe a pen that he took with him, I don't know. But see, Jesus could take those skills that he had and employ Matthew to keep a record of what Jesus did during his life. Now, I can't say for sure, but I think there's at least good reason to speculate that Matthew's abilities came in handy in writing his gospel. His gospel account is the fruit of that record-keeping ability that he had. Each of us comes to the Lord with unique skills and abilities and experiences Not a one of us can do everything, but each of us can do something. We can all offer our particular talents and abilities up to Him to serve Him in some way, and God can use whatever we have in the service of His kingdom if we let Him, if we allow Him to work in and through us. So this evening I encourage you to ask yourself, If you've followed Jesus as you ought, have you given up anything to follow him? Do you need to make some changes in your life? Have you yielded up your talents and your skills to him as you ought? Do you labor in the kingdom the way that you should? Or do you need to make a recommitment to him this evening? If we can help you in any way, you have the opportunity to make your need known now while we stand and while we sing.